So we're looking at chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith on Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, and we've come to the last two paragraphs. I think we started them last week. And today I want to focus uh, on the change that is referred to in paragraph 7, the change of the day from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Now, I had written this little booklet a number of years ago, and uh, it's been around and depleted and replenished, and, uh, but today I want to um, actually go through it with you, and I've added some things to it. So uh, let me read, to start us off, the paragraph 7 and 8 of chapter 22, which says, As it is the law of nature that, in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, Shabbat, rest, to be kept holy unto him from the beginning, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is also called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. And then in paragraph 8, it talks about how we are to keep the day holy to the Lord. The Sabbath then is to be kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. And the couple passages that are listed at the bottom there, which are really important for that paragraph, are uh, Isaiah 58, 13, which I would say is the most important one, the most uh, helpful one, and the most descriptive of the positive function of the day in God's economy, and in Nehemiah 13, 15 through 22 as well. But Isaiah 58, 13, and we'll talk about that next week or in two weeks, God willing. But today I wanted to focus on the change. So in paragraph 7, last week we already talked about the law of nature. Remember I asked you the question, how, how, does, the, how does nature uh, show us that in general we should give some time to worshiping God? Uh, because the contrast in the first sentence of paragraph 7 is that the law of nature teaches us this, but God has given us a positive moral <laughs> commandment to that effect. Um, a positive, stated in, in a positive form, as opposed to the other commandments which are stated in the prohibitionary form. You know, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, and so on. You shall not steal. So a positive and moral, and that's a key word there. And I talk about that in this little booklet that we're going to be talking about now. <clears throat> so that's where we are. And... Let us proceed. I'll, I'll uh, reference the pages, but I took the book and I put it on a larger sheet for me so I could put some notes on it for teaching the class today. But I did note the pages of the little booklet for you. Uh, you don't need to look at the, the little booklet. Um, if it's a distraction, you don't need to do that. You can take it home with you. And, but if you want to, that's fine. I'll mention the pages. So, the, uh, the purpose of this booklet 
was to show why Christians worship on the first day of the week. And I'm sure you can see that this is a pretty important matter. You have Seventh-day Adventists who believe we should worship God on the seventh day, this is Saturday. And you have, so you have an entire group, denomination, that holds to that view. Uh, it's not the prevailing view in Christendom by, by any means at all, because uh, Christianity or Christendom has, has uh, accepted the change and sees that in the Bible this change has been clearly revealed to us and that there are good reasons for the change. And so in this little book we talk about the fact that the day has changed, just that's what you see when you read the New Testament, and then the origin or the reason why the day has changed, and then uh, that's on page 10, and then the, the wisdom, you might say the wisdom, where I have here the beauty on page 15 of the change of the day. So these are important considerations, the fact, the reason, the wisdom or the rationale, why, is, why has the day changed, and then I want to get to, in this class, and not just at the very end, but I hope to spend significant time on this very beautiful statement in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9, which says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And uh, that's, that's the best part of the study, I think, where you're studying a Greek word there. And I think when we get to that point, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So we'll start on then on this, uh, the booklet here, and I'll talk you through it, that uh, our confession says that it's a positive moral command. I pointed this out last week. People often miss this, I think. They, I'm pretty sure many people miss this, that... Um, the fourth commandment, all of the commandments in the Decalogue are moral. And they're moral because we're obligated to keep them. They're all functions of righteousness. So it's easy to see how the seventh commandment is a moral commandment. You should not commit adultery and all the sins associated with it. Uh, you can see how the sixth commandment is moral, the sanctity of life. And uh, the... Uh, Eighth commandment is also moral, the sanctity of property. You steal, that's, that's immoral. So, in, 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 in its essence, okay, you know, the difference among sins is vast. So I'm not trying to say that not keeping the fourth commandment is as bad as not keeping the seventh commandment or the sixth commandment. I'm not saying that. It's just, just simply pointing out the fact that they are, they are all moral commandments because when we talk about morality, we're talking about a standard that we, we meet or conform to the standard of who God is so that actually the first four commandments are moral because worshiping God is a moral issue. I'm sure you'd agree with that, that, that worshiping God is a moral issue because we're moral beings. We're responsible to God. We are we are spiritual beings. We can relate to God as the animals cannot because we have spirits. We have um, made in the image of God. So we have the capacity to receive communication and give back communication to God. We, we can think rationally uh, as opposed to just instinctively like the animal kingdom. Uh, so we have these attributes 
by virtue of our creation in the image of God. And one of them is morality, and it is that we, we, we can and we ought to measure up to as a standard of righteousness. And so that has to do with the worship of God, first four commandments, and living this life. Commandments 5 through 10. So God commands us that we keep the Sabbath holy. And if anything that's under a command in, in God's word is, is a moral issue. And so that means, as the booklet starts off, by saying that the fourth commandment lays upon us a moral duty of keeping one day in seven, distinct and separate from all other days. Uh, that's, that point, of course, is not, is not held by uh, uh, many Christians. Um, and I think that's, it's tragic. I think it's also tragic, and I think it's, um, it's just ill-founded to extract the fourth commandment from the rest of the Decalogue and separate it and put it off to the side and say it doesn't apply anymore. Also, it's not correct to say that the New Testament doesn't say anything about the Sabbath. Sometimes that's a matter of, you know, just... Um, I would say confusing terms because the the New Testament the New Testament takes the Old Testament Sabbath and heightens it or elevates it uh, based on the resurrection of Christ, which we're going to be talking about here. So on page two here, we see that the fourth commandment takes us back to the creation of the world where God himself rested from his labor. So that we also say teach and confess and believe that the fourth commandment is, a, is based on a creation ordinance, that it's not purely mosaic. That's another argument for dispensing of the fourth commandment in much theology today and in many churches, that they fail to see or refuse to see that it's a creation ordinance. It's a, it's a, it's a remembrance of creation. And that, that just fills out the picture of the beauty of the Sabbath, Lord's Day, Christian Sabbath. It's a beautiful thing because we see in it that ultimately on, the, on this Lord's Day here, we are remembering creation and the new creation, the resurrection of Christ. So, the, so that, and you have that same phenomenon in the Old Testament in Exodus 20, we have the first giving of the, of the Decalogue. It, it's creation. In Deuteronomy 5, where it's repeated, second giving of the law, the fourth commandment is added there, their redemption. So it adds to the creation idea right there in the Decalogue. And it's in its two publications. You have, in Exodus 20, creation. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And he rested on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, he adds that they are to remember that they were delivered from bondage in Egypt. And so it's a, it, it, the Lord's Day is, is a, it's a picture. It's a, and I would say it's one of, the, one of the important pictures in Scripture. And it's something that we, it, we implement, you know, we implement, we, we apply, use in our lives. So, back on page 2 there, the fourth commandment takes us back to creation, Exodus 20, verse 11. Um, and we understand also that when it says that God rested on the seventh day, it doesn't mean that he's, he, he, ceased, he ceased to be working, because in John 17, John 5, 17, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So, God's rest on the Sabbath simply means that his creation work ceased, and he took great delight in what he had made. So the emphasis there 
in the creation remembrance is to take delight. And that's what Isaiah 58 and verse 13 talks about, calling the Lord's Day a delight. And it's sad, and it's, it's really unfair to take like language of the confession, which many people do, and say that, you know, that it's, a, it's a kind of Puritan-like bondage to say you keep the whole day, you keep the whole day holy to the Lord. It's some kind of bondage that... Uh, it's a very unfair accusation, and it's really, uh, it's really unrighteous to say a thing like that. Because that's not how the Bible portrays it at all. And anyway... God's rest on the Sabbath day simply means that his creation work ceased, as I said, Genesis 1.31, so that in, in Sabbath keeping or keeping rest, some people just have this thing about the word Sabbath. They, to them it's just Jewish, and it just, you know, it just rubs them the wrong way. So, so change, use a different word. If that does that to you, just use rest, because that's what it means. Uh, remembering, reflecting, rejoicing, and being refreshed in the works of God. If the word bothers you, which it really shouldn't, does the word temple bother you? <laughs> because there was a Jewish temple? Does the word sacrifice trouble you? Because the Old Testament sacrifices have ceased? No, these are, these are just as much New Testament words uh, as this one. So on page three, I just talk about the foundation of our faith and life being built on the Old Testament. And so it's, it's always important in, 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 in interpreting the Bible to just always keep that picture in mind, you know, foundation and fullness, the foundation and the fullness, that God lays a foundation in his word, like you have in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the apostles and prophets laid the foundation, and then Christ is built on top of the foundation, that's the building. And so you have that here even in, uh, even in this matter of the, uh, the fourth commandment, you have a foundation being laid. And then you have the fullness, which is the experience of it. And I make what I'd like to say is an important connection on page three of this booklet here, that the New Testament or Christian Sabbath or Lord's Day, whatever you want to call it, retains all that the Old Testament Sabbath is, but puts new wine into new wineskins. If ever that verse applied, it applies to this that the, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the remembrance of the resurrection, just puts that new wine into new wineskins. And the form is different. So there, there, are no, there are no grand declarations in the New Testament about the change of the day. In other words, you know, it doesn't say, now stop. You're going to see it here in the next verse. You're going to see it here in the next chapter. Take note. You just see it happening, that's all. You just see it happening. Um, page four, I talk about the Christian Sabbath. Now, changing the language to what it should be. The Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, or the Lord's Day Sabbath. We have a number of options here. Therefore, as a weekly remembrance of two things. Creation, as I said, and the new creation, because the gospel is a new beginning, according to Mark 1 and verse 1. A new beginning. And yet in that same gospel, Mark chapter 2 and verse 28, Jesus said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Also in that same gospel, chapter 2 and verse, no, um, hold on, chapter 2, the verse where he says that the Sabbath was made for man. We'll come to it, but... 
Yeah, same, same place, uh, 227. Uh, Jesus was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The second part of this, the, the verse, not, made, not man for the Sabbath, just means in the context, you know, not for the Pharisees to bind people in the way that they did. But it doesn't negate the first part of the sentence. You follow that? It's kind of early in the morning. This is a, well, but you follow that, I'm sure. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The second part of the statement doesn't negate the first, because the second part is just talking about the perversion of it. So put the perversion aside for a minute, forget it for a minute, and just concentrate on the first part, which is that the Sabbath was made for man, that there's a reason for it. It's a good thing. It was made for, you could add and should add, the benefit of man, for man's benefit, his well-being. And consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think that statement, that statement it just looks forward to what Jesus is going to do with the Sabbath, which is he's going to change the day. So let's look at the change, uh, starting on page 5, Acts 20, verse 7. I'll just uh, go through these quickly here, not to, uh, not to be like a, a train rolling over you, but you're also familiar with these references. Acts 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So here in Acts 20 and verse 7 is one of those places where you see the, the change taking place. A clear reference to Christians worshiping on the first day of the week in a short and simple but irrefutable, I think, statement. Just as you have in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 where the church was meeting uh, to break bread, uh, Acts 2 verse 42, which is what Paul mentions in Acts 20, Luke mentions in Acts 20 on the first day when we were gathered together to break bread. The, uh, the next statement then is found in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1 and 2 where you read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So here, Paul is telling the Christians to put aside their money, their offering, so that he would not need to be asking for funds when he came. And here, in this private setting, uh, the, the private setting aside, setting aside of funds had something to do with the first day of the week. That is, you present the offerings on the first day of the week. And it's emphatic here, every first day of the week, literally. So in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul wouldn't be speaking this way if first-day gatherings were not the norm in the apostolic churches. And then, you have, of course, you have Revelation 1 and verse 10, a very important statement where the Apostle John, many decades later, refers to the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So on page 7, I show that this statement... Uh, on the Lord's day can only be understood as number one, the day that had come to be associated with the Lord Jesus himself. The day that came to be associated with the Lord Jesus himself. You know, 
in the Old Testament, the day was associated with creation. It was also associated with their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. So here in Revelation 1.10, it's associated with the Lord Jesus himself. Number two, it can only be understood as a day other than the Sabbath day, which belonged to the Lord Jesus, just as the Sabbath belongs to God. So in that sense, yes, it's a different day. It's the first day. It's the Lord's day and not the Old Testament Sabbath day. So what is this day belonging to the Lord Jesus? Well, it's the day of his resurrection. And the Gospel of John and the chapters at the end, chapter 20 and following, which give you the Lord's post-resurrection uh, appearances, we will come to that in a minute. That's where you see the, the, the change. Also, you see it there taking place even earlier than the ones that we saw in the apostolic age. And his resurrection, in, in the language of Romans 1, that critical text... Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, where Paul opens the book of Romans and says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, verse 4, who was designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he was vindicated in his resurrection. In his death, man had, man had the upper hand, so to speak, or certainly looked that way. They, they put him to death. They judged him a sinner. Uh, they wanted to be rid of him, right? And God vindicated him. He vindicated him. And in fact, he said to the world and to those who put him to death, no. He is my son, and he performed a righteous act. So some of the, the church fathers bear witness to this. I have some quotes from them on pages 7 and 8. I'll read them, read them now. The early church fathers, the Didache, uh, says, on the, Lord's own day, on the Lord's own day, they gather together and break bread and give thanks, having first confessed your sins, so that your sacrifice may be pure. I'm sorry. On the Lord's day, the Lord's own day, to command, gather together, break bread, and give thanks, having first confessed your sins, so that your sacrifice may be pure. You can find this in the Apostolic Fathers, page 267. Uh, Ignatius, in his letter to the Magnesians, chapter 9 and verse 1, says, If then those who had lived in antiquated practices came to newness of hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but living in accordance with the Lord's day on which our life also arose through him, how can we possibly live without him? Also the Apostolic Fathers, page 155. Justin Martyr wrote, quote, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memories of the apostles, of the writings of the prophets are read. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. Because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness of matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. Uh, that, that's a beautiful reference there, actually. Um, 
So Philip Schaff, the church historian, said, The celebration of the Lord's Day in memory of the resurrection of Christ dates undoubtedly from the apostolic age. Nothing short of apostolic precedent can account for the universal religious observance in the churches of the second century. There is no dissenting voice. This custom is confirmed by the testimonies of the earliest post-apostolic writers. That is, the earliest post-apostolic after the apostles. Which is important history for us, naturally. Apostolic precedent just means that... uh, You remember, we've talked about this many times, if... if, uh, Jesus gave his apostles authority. Jesus gave his apostles authority uh, so that receiving them was receiving him, and receiving him was receiving them. And the Spirit would guide them into all the truth. So um, you have apostolic precedent, which is what Philip Schaff was talking about. So let's go on then. Sorry to be moving along like this, but I want to get to this last part, which... So on page 10, we talk about the, the origin or the, um, actually the cause. The cause, as we've been saying, is the resurrection of Christ. So here, turn to John chapter 20. We'll skip on page 11, John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20. So let's start with verse 19. Uh, So Jesus appears to his disciples, the heading, the English Bible. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also have sent you. Points out in verse 24 that Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So that the other disciples reported, verse 25, that we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of his nails... The nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So that's the first appearance. This is the first appearance, one week after the resurrection, the first day of the week. Just try try to imagine that, that day, that a week later. The joy that they had at the resurrection and now a week later on the first day of the week. And the question that comes here is why did the disciples, verse 19, why did they gather on the first day of the week? Interesting question, isn't it? Why did they gather as a group? They were confused about a lot of things, but apparently not this one. They came together to wait for the Lord to come to them. They knew that he was alive, and he did come to them. He came to them exactly one week after his resurrection. And so as many have noted, this is the first Lord's Day Sabbath in the sacred record. In that meeting, he gave them evidence of his resurrection. Then in John 20, 26, 
you read, after eight days again, his disciples were inside, this is on page 14, page 13, and Thomas with them. Now this time he's with them. But after eight days in Jewish reckoning means one week later. So that the eighth day equals the first day, one week later. And you can do some study on the Old Testament feasts here to show that the Jews had been prepared to understand the significance of the first and the eighth days. I list on page 14, Exodus 12, Exodus 22, Leviticus 22, 23, uh, Numbers 28, Numbers 29. So that here, now in verse 26, you have the second Lord's Day after the resurrection. And Jesus is beginning to establish this pattern for his disciples, appearing to them on the first day of the week, the, first, the very first Lord's Day, and then the second Lord's Day, um, this time encouraging Thomas and uh, shoring up his faith. And then you come, of course, to Revelation 1 and verse 10, the Lord's Day, and then you have the references in between that we talked about in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and uh, 1 Corinthians 16. So, you know, for some people... Sometimes for some people, evidence, they want more evidence than the evidence that's already there. And I've had conversations with people over the years about this, the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. And to them, all of this is not enough evidence. So, okay. It's, in, 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 uh, in studying here the Bible, or studying an ancient document, these, these are actually very strong evidences. Um, anyway... So we come then to the beauty or the rationale for the day change, and you find this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. First Corinthians 4, uh, 3 through 6. Paul says, I think it's 2 Corinthians. Yeah, well, that's a big typo. 2 Corinthians. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So on page 17, I talk about how this is an important consideration in understanding the reason for the change of the day from Sabbath to Lord's Day, and also for just helping us to appreciate the magnificent beauty of, uh, of the, the Lord's day. Because, see, it's, it's relation to creation here, which is what this is all about, creation, rest, uh, the new creation, remembrance of the creation, remembrance of Christ's resurrection. So the God who commanded light to be, light to be is the same God who spoke the light of Christ into our dead and dark souls. So this first day gospel conversion, if you will, 
uh, is tied right in by the first day basis of saving faith, the resurrection. So when Christians worship on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, they are engaging in a living memorial, this is page 17, of the creation, because they are working six days and resting one, but also remembering and proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. The authority behind the change, uh, this is on page 18, uh, I didn't say first here, but first, it should, it should be first. The authority behind the change is the risen Christ. Second, the authority is also the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised to send to guide his disciples into all the truth. And the third, on page 19, is the apostles, who were led by the Spirit and who... were the, the, the leaders of the church as it practiced this change in the day. Uh, page 21, an interesting thing here to notice, as one writer says, the Christian Sabbath commemorates the three great works of the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, first day creation week, God the Son, first day resurrection, and God the Holy Spirit, first day Pentecost, his coming for the sanctification of God's new creation. So uh, let's go on then to Hebrew. Does anyone have any questions? Let's, let's please, if we'll try to limit it to questions. I'd like to get to this next part. Anyone have any questions? Yes. Uh, if there have been this kind of change or like the Sabbath and what we do on Sunday is supposed to be equal in that sense. The Sabbath was was more broad than just cessation from work. Um, and I pulled up the scripture, Isaiah 58. It's kind of in the middle of the thought, but I wanted to get to the thought. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath from doing thine own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath of the light, the holy of the Lord honorable and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thy own words. And I know that before I was much earlier taught things like, for example, today in the Super Bowl, watching that will be taking your own pleasure on God's day. You know, anything that you do outside of a strict focus on God and glorifying God and thinking about God is really the filing of the Sabbath. So it's like, how much do we carry over from the Sabbath as far as what they were given? But they were given strict rules on how to obey it and observe it and what we do on Sundays. Because, yeah, we come to church and some of us or most of us maybe not work, but we do have some things maybe on Sunday. I don't know is what I'm asking. Yeah. As far as sure. what is actually honoring the Sabbath or yeah. keeping that commandment for us on Sunday that is, is it more restrictive than what we're, you know, we're thinking Well, I think the, the key is the, the, the verse that you mentioned is, is, I agree with everything you said in, in, around the question. Um, and so the Isaiah 58 passage, which we talked about in the beginning, right, mentioned it, is a, is a regulates it. it. It certainly explains what to do, so... So I think the key there is, the keys there are, there are a couple of things, is to you know, fill the Lord's day with the things that God says we are to do, and works of necessity, and there's not much left, you know, 
just isn't much left. And so, and the other thing you want to be careful of is, um, and, and scrupulously avoid, which we do. We don't have a code in our church. So we believe in the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, and we believe what our confession says, but we don't list things. We have rules. And so that's the, the takeaway from the Pharisaic perversions of the, of the seventh day. We certainly don't want to do that. Okay, great question. Any other questions? All right. So let's talk about the Hebrews uh, 4 and verse 9. This is, a, this is a, actually a, a word study uh, ending to our Sunday school class, which I find really exciting. You know, I love words, and so I often talk about Greek words and the compound of Greek words. Um, and so there's this book that students of Greek New Testament use. I've had it for decades. It's the Lexical A's for students of New Testament Greek. And it's a great little book. It has vocabulary in it. Um, um, you know, words occurring more than 500 times in the Greek New Testament, words occurring more than 250 times. You know, it's, it's a book like that, right? And then you get that all the way to 10. So if you could learn all of those words, you would know most of the Greek in the New Testament, right? So that's the first part, is vocabulary. And then the second part of this little aid is uh, to talk about the formation of words. And this is really important for what we're about to do. So it talks about the, uh, what you put on the end of a word, all right, the, the little suffix that you put on the end of the word. So if you look in your Bible at Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, verse 9. Yeah, so Hebrews 4 is all about this Sabbath rest, right? And I confess, it's not an easy chapter. And I've looked at it for a long, long time. I've preached some sermons on it. And I, it's not an easy chapter to... The comparison between the Old Testament rest and Joshua giving them rest, it's just challenging. But the statement in verse 9 is very unique. Uh, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, the Greek word that is used there is not the word that he uses in the rest of the letter. It's a completely different word. In fact, it's the only time this word is used. It seems like Paul just invented the writer just invented this word because there are no there are no other uses of it in extra biblical literature there is a possibility in a later like fourth century but that's way too late for this Uh, the only thing we have is uh, in the greek translation of the hebrew old testament we do have a confirmation about this but anyway so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God is actually better and more accurate to say there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. So the reason for this, and Robert Martin deals with this in his commentary on Hebrew is really excellent, an excellent way and quotes, gives a few quotes which I'm also going to, to give you. So let me mention a few things that uh, Robert Paul Martin says The word rest appears ten other times in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And in each case, it translates a different word. Okay? Katapausis, or the verbal form. Not this form. This word, in 4 and 9, he used a different word. He called it a sabbatismos. And it's that little suffix at the end, a little mos, M-O-S, sabbatismos, mos at the end. 
The only English version that translates it this way is the Bible, Bible in Basic English, which is a fairly good translation, and I quote from it from time to time. And it says, there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. And the thing is that, to try to give you some examples of the, the use of the formation of this particular word, so in this, uh, in this book, I hope I'm not boring you, but... Um, no, can I ask a stop? Yeah, sure. So you're, I think what you're saying is this chapter has, uses the word rest a lot, but in verse 9, the word is different yes. than all the others? Yes. Okay. Different word. Yes. So it's the word baptismos. So when you put a... When you put, this is true, it would be true in English too, right? Any language. You put a suffix at the end. I mean, you, you take a word, even in English, you have a root, and then you can do lots of things with that word, right? Words are pretty use, useful. You could put something at the beginning. You could put something at the end. You can change the tense. You could change the mood. But that's the beauty of language. So here, in Greek... When you want to talk about the agent or the, the, the person doing something, you add taste. So let's take the word baptism. So John the Baptist, that's a Baptist taste. That means he's the agent. He's the man who baptizes. Or a disciple is a mathe taste. A mathe taste. The, Greek, the word for disciple in Greek, mathe tuo, is from the word mathematics. We get our word from mathematics from that, okay? So, mathete, so it's a person who learns. <clears throat> so, when you want to indicate the agent, you put the taste at the end. When you want to indicate an action, you put the moss. So, here are six examples here. You put the moss at the end. So, if you talk about a Baptist moss, Instead of a Baptist taste. Following? What is a Baptist taste? A person who baptizes. What is a Baptist moss? It's a washing. It's an action. It's the action itself. It's not the person who does it. It's the action itself. It's a washing. It's a purification. It's the act. You have uh, other Greek words. You have Baptist moss. You have moss that is a cleansing. You have, apolutri- uh, uh, you have uh, there's another one, moss and cyst that go on there. But then if you have a sabbatismos, that means you have an action. Follow that? It's not splitting hairs either, believe me. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's talking about an action. So let me read a few quotes here then from Robert Martin. Okay, we'll skip that one. Um, So one writer says, In each of these places, the term denotes the observance or celebration of the Sabbath. He was talking about some other writings later on. A celebration of the Sabbath. It corresponds to the Greek Old Testament, where you have in Exodus 16.30, Leviticus 23.32, 2 Chronicles 36.21, References to keeping the Sabbath. Okay, just just a just a comparison. In the Greek, it's that same word, sabbatismos. So apparently, by denoting a Sabbath observance, this word signifies not so much a Sabbath rest 
as a state to be entered into, but a Sabbath keeping to be practiced. And that's the basic idea. It's a Sabbath keeping to be practiced. Uh, and I want to belabor the point, um, but that is the significance. Uh, I'll read one other quote then, Alexander Bruce, on this word. He says, it's one of the most, uh, it's, it is one of the significant thought-suggesting words which abound in the epistle, the idea of um, the Sabbath. It embodies an idea. It connects the end of the world, the end of the world with the beginning, the consummation with the creation. The, as we're seeing in the fourth commandment, it's a remembrance of the creation and also the new creation or the work of creation and the work of redemption. And just as, just as in the creation, Genesis 131, didn't God on the seventh day rest and enjoy? He entered in, he enjoyed, so that's what we do in the Christian Sabbath. We enter in so that we might enjoy the blessings of the new creation in Christ. So uh, I think I'm going to stop my explanation there. We have uh, anyone? You know what? Yeah. Quick question. Yeah. Uh, 